Good evening. These are the Grapevine Sessions. And this is take one. So this is the uh, first page of uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came down from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him on the mild morning air. As he held the bowl aloft, he intoned, In shoibo ad alteri dei. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called out coarsely, Come up, kitch! Come up, you fearful Jesuit! Solemnly, he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding land and the awakening mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Dedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bowl smartly. Back to barracks, he said sternly. He added in a preacher's tone, for this, O oh dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine, body and soul and blood and oons. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents, one moment. A little trouble about those white corpuscles. Silence all. Now, that's the first page of Ulysses, and there's so much there. What I like about Joyce is the remarkable amount that can be extracted. For instance, in any good copy of this, the first letter of the first word, stately, will be a large, a large S. It'll be in a drop cap. And that's no accident. You know, even down to the printing, even down to uh, the mise en page, uh, the S carries significance in the way in which it relates to the Book of Kells, which is an early uh, medieval manuscript, and it contains the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and, and what, what makes it remarkable is that it is uh, lavishly decorated. It's incredible. Joyce called the Book of Kells the most Irish thing in existence. And he had a facsimile of it that he carried with him across all of his travels in Europe when he was under self-imposed exile. This serpentine S is rather like the, 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 the snakes within the book that are often depicted as eating their own tails. One of the things it symbolises is the nature of eternity, also the nature of life. There may well be a hint towards Boethius and his Fortuna, Wheel of Fortune, um, since made famous by <laughs> the TV show. Were you a watcher of Wheel of Fortune? Do you know what? I never caught it. You never caught it? I never caught it. Let's bring ourselves back to Ulysses. Yeah. What on earth is going on? Well, um, what on earth is going on? That's the thing. The symbolic nature of the Book of Kells, incorporating that with the S. Interestingly, it, that goes further. It's not just it starts off with the S and that serpentine drop cap letter references the Ouroboros snake eating itself, the Wheel of Fortune, life going on and on and on. And the book is about sort of um, uh, the great epic, which is life itself. 
that S ends the book too. So you do really get, the book begins with stately Buck Mulligan. The book ends in yes, 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 three yeses. The circle's complete. He does this again in Finnegan's Wake to a much more sort of extreme degree. He starts the book uh, in the middle of a sentence and he ends it in the middle of the same sentence. So the book is constantly going around and around and around. You cannot finish Finnegan's Wake. I mean, you could joke, you can't finish Finnegan's Wake because no one knows what on earth it's about. But you, can't, you, you cannot finish. There is no end point. It just keeps going and keeps going. And so it's interesting to see him teasing that idea. Well, it brings me to a, a grape that Orwell wrote on Joyce and Ulysses, in, in which he calls him an elephantine pedant. Let me read you some of the grape itself. This is from Inside the Whale, written in 1940. Now and again... There appears a novel which opens up a new world not by revealing what is strange, but by revealing what is familiar. The truly remarkable thing about Ulysses, for instance, is the commonplaceness of its material. Of course, there is much more in Ulysses than this, because Joyce is a kind of poet and also an elephantine pedant, but his real achievement has been to get the familiar onto paper. He dared, for it is a matter of daring just as much as of technique, to expose the imbecilities of the inner mind, and in doing so he discovered an America which was under everybody's nose. Here is a whole world of stuff which you suppose to be of its nature incommunicable, and somebody has managed to communicate it. The effect is to break down, at any rate momentarily, the solitude in which the human being lives. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's fantastic. And then what is so great about Joyce? So, for instance, I mean, the, the sea is not green, or blue, I mean, you'd call, a, a, an imbecile would call the sea blue. Someone with a bit of sense would call it green, or perhaps sapphire. Um, well, what seas have you been sailing on? The dark yeah. blue. <laughs> the dark blue. And, well, clearly you're an imbecile. Um, but in Joyce, it's snot green, uh, and, and it's uh, scrotum clenching. That's a colour, is it? No, we've gone beyond colours now. It's taking the, the familiar and making something magnificent out of it. So there's a point when Leopold mm-hmm. Bloom has a bath. He just has a bath, and you think, well, why would you have that? Also, he, 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 um, he has a shit, uh, and he doesn't push down too hard, and as a result, it's a successful shit, and that's recorded. Most novels don't add the bit where the protagonist goes to the toilet. To go back to... Sorry. Well, I just want to jump in at this point, because I've got another aged figure from the past and this is Bernard Shaw this time writing to Sylvia Beach uh, lady the founder of the Shakespeare and Company a uh, a well-known tourist trap in Paris that once sold books here's Shaw I've read several fragments of Ulysses in its serial form it is a revolting record of a disgusting phase of civilization but it is a truthful one and I should like to put a cordon round Dublin round up every male person in it between the ages of 15 and 30 force them to read it and asked them whether on reflection they could see anything amusing in it, all that foul-mouthed, foul-minded derision and obscenity. To you, possibly, it may appeal as art. You are probably, you see, I don't know you, a young barbarian beglamoured by the excitements and enthusiasms that art stirs up in passionate material. But to me it is all hideously real. I have walked those streets and know those shops and have heard and taken part in those conversations. I escaped from them to England at the age of twenty, and 40 years later have learnt from the books of Mr. Joyce that Dublin is still what it was, and young men are still drivelling in slack-jawed blackguardism just as they were in 1870. So, well, look, it was obscene. 
It was obscene. So what, was Joyce's answer. So what? That was life. And also, Joyce didn't like Dublin. I mean, he loved Dublin as much as he hated it. He said he couldn't write there. It's too busy, too noisy. Um, so, uh, yes, it was obscene. There are fart jokes in, in James Joyce. Well, that sounds very modern. It's very modern in lots of ways. It is very modern. Okay, well, let me... Seeing as we are wandering towards an appreciation of the man, and, and his ideas and, and the necessity of one reading it, just like you've always been told since you were 16. Let me finally pose you this from John Carey. Uh, the Intellectuals and the Masses, 1992. This is on the intimacy and alienation of Ulysses. By the end of Joyce's Ulysses, we know Leopold Bloom more thoroughly than any character in fiction has ever been known before. We know his secrets, his intimate memories, his half-formed thoughts, his erotic fantasies. We watch him performing, as you say, bodily functions of a kind strictly excluded from fiction hitherto. We know of his unspoken griefs over the death of his son, over his father's suicide. We know his height, his weight, and the date on which he last had sex with his wife. Can we say then that in Ulysses, mass man is redeemed? Is Joyce the one intellectual? This was Carrie's concern, the intellectuals versus the masses and the, the degree to which intellectuals have throughout the 20th century always viewed mass man as an inferior product. Is Joyce the one intellectual who intones for Nietzschean contempt of the masses and raises mass man or a representative of mass man to the status of epic hero? To a degree, yes. And yet it is also true that Bloom himself would never and could never have read Ulysses or a book like it. The complexity of the novel, its avant-garde technique, its obscurity, rigorously exclude people like Bloom from its readership. More than almost any other 20th century novel, it is for intellectuals only. Uh, how, how does one answer a charge like that? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that it's hard. It's hard work. You've got to work at it. But is it only for a select but portion no, of society? no. I don't think so. I mean, you have to be able to read. But um, that's the only requirement. Yes, that is the only requirement, because you can understand it on various, in various different ways, right? So you can read that passage that I just read and understand, okay, that's two people talking to each other and one man's gone up the top of his house to have a shave and look across Ireland and another man doesn't like him very much. And you can understand it in that way. But then, if you're interested enough, you can then research further and see what else this has to offer and get more from it like that. Do you need to be an intellectual to do that? No, I think you need to be a curious person to do that. Would someone like Leopold Bloom read this? Uh, I, think, I think actually Leopold Bloom could read this. He's, he's not a stupid man. He, he reads the paper and argues with it. Um, so I think this is There you go, there you have it. Ulysses, just like the Times, all easily digestible on a Tuesday morning. I'm not saying it's easily digestible, but I am saying it's not beyond the capacity of Leopold Bloom. Okay, well, let me pick up with another idea that you mentioned here, circular narrative and the way Joyce manages to achieve that, not just in his prose, but on the page itself, literally with his typography. Because it draws to mind another figure we all come across as we discover books in the world of books. Kafka, of course. Of course. Here, here's a man who, in what I would say are his greatest two books, The Trial and the Castle, faces this problem of how do you finish a book when... It's actually the same problem that Lost faced. You ever watched that show? I never saw it, but I understand the ending was not good. It, well, Underwhelming. Uh, well, it, the problem is that the greater your initial premise, the harder it is to ever end it. Yeah. So maybe that's the same problem that Joyce faced, Captain faced, Lost faces, you know, Star Wars will face 
when it ends in 2050. <laughs> it takes something like The Castle where the whole idea is... Have you read the book? The Castle, yeah. Yeah, yeah K. K, well, you say K as if it's unique to the castle. I mean, K is in all Kafka. <laughs> uh, that's true. But K reappears in the castle. <laughs> Making his upteenth appearance in the fiction of Kafka, the uh, self-titled K, is in search of the castle, to those who haven't yet read it, as the very first page indeed makes clear. This is a place that the man will never reach. Many have taken this to be an allegory of heaven or simply the search for someone at the end of the call centre who understands what you're talking about for those who see him as a bureaucratic thinker. I'd just like to read this quote from Nicole Krauss on the frustrations of Kafka. Frustration was more than a subject for Kafka. It was a whole dimension of existence. And the moment one begins to read him, one is delivered there again. There is never any resolution to the first aggravating, then enervating scenarios that arise in his writing. There is only the great unending occupation of them, the nearly tantric endurance of frustration that achieves nothing except to prime the soul for absurdity. And, and that's almost what I want to bring up here with Joyce as well. This idea of the circularity of life and the winding of time is all very beautiful, but where does it lead us? What does it do for us other than frustrate and tantalize? Mm, well, I mean, certainly Kafka was a very frustrated individual. How so? Well, I think largely we can blame his father. Uh, his father was a brutal, nasty, horrible old man that, sure. tre that, treated, uh, that treated Kafka in a, in a disgusting way. Famously, Kafka wrote his father a, a multi-page letter mm -hmm. explaining exactly why he was so frightened of him, and he sent it to his mother to give to his father, and she never gave it to him. The damage has been done. I mean, but then you say the damage has been done. Without the damage, we wouldn't have Kafka. How much damage was done? Wasn't a great. There could have been done. so many more completed works. Kafka was. But could they have been in the same caliber, of the same frustration, of the same genius that somehow seems to speak for the infinite? I mean, didn't the very abuse by his father actually create a force in this world that has been? That's certainly an argument. You could certainly argue that if it wasn't for his father locking a, a very young Kafka out onto the balcony of their apartment in the middle of the night because little boy Kafka had asked his father for a glass of water because he was thirsty and he said no you can't have one and locked him outside in the freezing cold um, yeah maybe that created the brilliance uh, later in life or maybe it was there already and it was it was greatly hindered and we missed out on so many more completed works and a more rounded individual because... oh, there you go. brilliant words there completed works rounded individual but isn't the very necessity of Kafka that his works are incomplete that they are not rounded that the castle finishes mid-sentence and the trial should have the most disappointing thing about the trial is the ending the the absurdity of of Kay's eventual demise I mean, the whole necessity I feel like of Kafka is that he was who he was, that he left his works to Max Broad, that he insisted on their burning without meaning on their burning. Archives have been fought over by Israel and by Czechoslovakia and by Germany. I mean, the myth and the life and the fiction are all part of one symbolic process and we really couldn't wish for a, for a different man or a different father of the man. Well, that's... That's the rub there, the father. I mean, we certainly can wish for a different man. Kafka is brilliant. Everyone knows Kafka's brilliant. 
know, when we talk about Kafka, we talk about Joyce. I mean, doesn't life end mid-sentence, anyway? Isn't that the most accurate way to end any novel? Because life's end mid-sentence. No, no one finishes their life with a full stop. Well, Keats would certainly agree. Would and he? we can get on to that. We can get on to, 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 to Keats' idea of life, and which was um, over far too soon. Uh, and he knew it, which is part of the tragedy. Is this something he speaks to in, in the ode? Yeah, so Keats' Ode to Nightingale, I think it's one of those poems that everyone thinks they know, but actually when you stop to read it... I think really it's a poem it, I, I remember having to read when I was younger without yeah. having rediscovered. Well, let me read the first three stanzas. Please. The most devastating, as, as I recall. These first three stanzas are, are, are difficult sometimes for me to read. Sometimes I can't read them. So I'm, but hopefully I'll be able to do that for you now. It's like the bluebird, isn't it, all over again? It's like Bukowski's bluebird, yeah. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and Lethywoods had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer, in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green. Dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim, fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever and the fret. Here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and specks are thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Now that affects me a lot. I struggle to read that and not get... And what's going, what, are, what is going through your mind when you read those words? What is it you just saw? So a lot of this is about the ideal of romanticism and turning towards nature, try and find a certain sense of happiness. But when, but, you, but when, when, you, when you just read it, I mean, yeah, what, what is yeah. it that you... Well, then the tragedy of then comparing that to the reality, which is we, can't, we will never be, we will never singest of summer in full-throated ease in a way that the nightingale. Will. And I know that sounds silly when I extract it like that, but within within the poem, it's it's very sad. And Keats again talks about he's talking about his youth disappearing. I mean, he only wrote this when he was well, he would have been under twenty five. I don't know when he wrote this, but he couldn't have been any older than twenty five when he died. And he's speaking of palsy, which shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where his youth is spectre thin and it dies, and there's nothing but sorrow, and he. 
and let no there's no yeah there's no beauty left anymore he's trying to find solace in the fact that it's there within the nightingale but that satisfaction he feels has an end and it will be cut off and it will be cut short which then takes us back to this idea of it does and then but you could conversely say that of course by writing it down and being read what 150 200 years later yeah yeah it, it, it is being continued and the circle of his words is yeah. continuing yeah well what is that ode um Restrain your tears and cease your cries, something, something. I shall live forever in my verse. I don't know who wrote. Um, that was uh, Ovid. But I find Keats himself, there's the diminutive nature of Keats. I mean, quite literally, first of all, his name, John Keats. It's a very small name. I mean, you laugh, but it, to speak metrically, it's a spondy, which is the shortest metrical foot you can have. What is a spondy exactly? A two stressed syllables. Right. You can have a pyrrhic, which is two unstressed syllables, but they tend to be like two and... Blah, blah, blah. And then his stature, I mean, he was four foot nine. He was a very small man, and he knew it as well. He was upset about that. He said, he wrote um, in a letter to his friend, he said, Lord Byron was doing very well, and he said, oh, to be a lord and six foot. That's a, that's a quote. You know, he, was, he was so angry at Byron for being blue blood and tall. He was mocked for the way he spoke, uh, apart from um, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who... Seemed to adore Keats, but Keats didn't really think that much of, of Shelley. Of course, when Shelley died, um, he drowned, um, and they pulled his body out of the sea. He had a pocket in his pocket. He had the poems of Keats. And now let's take a break to thank our sponsors. First up, we are proud, very proud here tonight. Have uh, Thinking About Io, a fantastic new communications consultancy sponsoring the Grapevine sessions. They're a consultancy. You have a twist, Nicholas, a fantastic twist. They are concerned with sorting out your content, your design, your innovation, your strategy for the future. But here's the twist. You ready for it? I'm ready. They are powered by philosophy. Now that, I mean, what more do you want from a company other than to be powered by philosophy? They're the kind of people that have read all the grapes. They've read all the books. They've studied the big texts and the small ones, and they know how to apply those principles, the kind of principles that we're talking about here tonight, that Baldwin talks about, that Joyce talks about, to your very specific business, you know, whether that's accounting or services in, you know, any other industry, catering, whatever you have. Retail. Because as Joyce knows, no life is less than epic, and that's what thinking about the IO knows too. Thanks a lot for sponsoring us, guys. Spectacular. Back to Ireland, we're going to look at Sarah Baum. I liked her title. I thought her title was a great demonstration of, of, of the simple beauties of a few words. See, I disagree with you. I agree that it's a beautiful title. My problem with that title, which, by the way, is Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, is that when you try and recommend this book to someone, you go, oh, yeah, that book by Sarah Baum, Filter, Wither, Spill, Summer, Summer... <laughs> No one can remember the name of the book, and yeah, I think consequently it's... That's true. Well, uh, hopefully she can uh, find redemption through your titling of her Grape on Grapevine. All listeners can find what we're talking about at grapevine.com. New site we've been building over the last 10 months. An easy place to find books, discuss words and ideas. If you have a spare 10 quid, go out and buy this book. One of the best books I've read in the last decade. So the book is about an old man. She wrote this when she was in her early 20s. But you're completely convinced from the first page that this 
must be written by an old, decrepit man who's a bit angry with the world, but it's not. And I don't actually know many instances of that working the other way around. Funnily enough, it's done very well by James Joyce, because at the end you have Molly Bloom reaching an orgasm whilst eating a poppy seed cake, and I have encountered very many women who have told me that that orgasmic experience, they can't believe that it was written by a man. But here's a, here's a quote for you from Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither. Now we see it, lying in the middle of the road, a swan, a mute swan. It looks like an offcut of an organza crumpled around the edges, twitching. As we pass, we see its long neck has buckled into its body like a folding chair. We see its wings are tucked back as if the tar is liquid and the swan is swimming. There are two men and a woman in the road. One man is standing on the tar, the other is directing the traffic. A woman is kneeling down beside the swan. I think she is crying. She seems to be crying, and this makes me suddenly angry. I think of all the other creatures we've seen since we've set out. I think of the rat, the fox, the kitten, the badger. I think of the jackdaw. Did you not see the jackdaw? We passed it in the queue to pass the swan. Its beak was cracked open. Its brain squeezed out. Why didn't anybody stop for the jackdaw? Because the swan looks like a wedding dress, that's why. Whereas the jackdaw looks like a bin bag. Because this is how people measure life. Now, the first time I read that, I um, cried. Uh, I just think that it's just beautiful. This is just an example of beautiful writing. I have very little to say other than this is just beautiful writing. Stendhal has a quote, the beauty is nothing else but a promise of happiness, which almost fits perfectly with the idea that the wedding dress is the promise of love and love is happiness. So, in fact, the death of the swan is really the death of human happiness. It's a bold claim. I mean, I think, I think what makes this passage beautiful is there's a truth to it. And she lands on it, exactly. And Keats, of course, said, going back to Keats, I didn't realise there were these connections, but Keats says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And I think that that is why this passage works so well, because there is a truth to it. But is she not saying beauty is simply the fashion? The death of the others was just as impactful as this one, which is we only care for the one. Mm. With Keats, is he saying, when he says beauty is truth, that... The beauty is your own truth, it's an objective truth. I mean, how do we judge beauty here? Well, that's interesting. I've always thought of it as an objective truth. But how possibly could it be? Because there are certain truths in this world. <laughs> and any of them are to do with aesthetics? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, we know that man-made things are typically ugly, and that nature is beauty, and that's what Keats was often talking about. We know that? How? Oh, I How mean, definitely, you look beauty? at, you go to the South Down, you look well, at that, that's just... That's more beautiful than the South Bank, is it? That, <laughs> that is, we'll get, so that's untouched beauty. Child, you tell, to look at that, and they will go, oh yes, I like that, it's green, it's, it's lush. There's something about like it, there's, some, there's, something, <laughs> there's something within us that goes, untouched nature is, has a beauty in it because it has some sort of truth to it. Man-made things can be so must a scar. They can, they can, but I mean, just slightly reject this notion that someone like Rousseau and the Romantics have always peddled that nature only makes beauty a man 
is what scars the landscape. Yeah. Nature is full of its imperfections too. Absolutely. Red and teeth seem, and claw. We seem to define nature as, by definition, beautiful. So but it's when you, we interfere um, that it becomes... So beauty, um, is, true. So, so beauty is, is the natural process. That's one perspective. And certainly the romantics would have thought anything related to nature was the ideal. The raging against the dying of the light. Should we... How would the romantics feel about that? Surely that's an unnatural emotion. Yes. And yet Keats seems to be doing it himself. Well, death is... Living is dying. Really, we're all dying. I'm dying. You're dying. So death is a perfectly natural part of life and a good life. Well, that brings me to the whole idea of the seven ages of man. Mm. But before I quote Shakespeare, I just want to give you this one grape from Baldwin that I, you said Sarah Baum was, was one of the best things you've read in the past decade. And The Fire Next Time, which I read last year, truly changed my perspective on the world. And this is a, a grape that feels, as so often with Baldwin, that it could have been written in the Bible. It's on life and death from the fire next time. Life is tragic. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day, for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, Blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations. In order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death. Ought to decide indeed to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying darkness from which we come and to which we shall return. Well, that's a remarkable piece of writing. That's a remarkable. What I do mean, you like about that? What are you getting from that? Well, it comes back to the circularity, but it's not perhaps too fussily for me made by the you know typeface of a page. It's just something that sears into you, no matter how it's printed. Mm. A bit like the Bible. You can read the Bible on a you know A6 booklet in a hotel motel in Louisiana. You can read the Bible in the King James edition in St. Paul's. The words are what matters, not the way it's presented. And, and when someone manages to combine words so simply in 140 words, I mean, that's a word for every character in a tweet. Yeah, yeah. Capturing that idea of death, or dying itself, so hard to do in literature. I read a book recently, Solar Bones. I've been meaning to, to turn this into a grape. Um, I've heard that before. <laughs> But it's encouraging, it's encouraging to hear. So, Solar Bones by uh, Mike McCormack. Um, remarkable, remarkable book for many reasons. Uh, the first, most obvious reason, is it's told in one sentence. The entire book is just a single sentence. But back to this idea of death and writing about death, um, how do you do that? I think Mark, Mike McCormack has done that exceptionally well. I'm going to read you a passage from this, which is about to become a grape. Friday, March 21st, the day on which my wife widowed and my two children lost their father, the day my name was unhinged from the man who owned it. Such a clear and detailed memory of my own death at the precise moment I said to myself through blinding pain, I'll just listen to these news headlines, when at that precise moment the vast harmonic of my whole being was undone and I came apart in sheets and waves 
torrential and ever falling. My grip on all those markers which gathered and held me to this world completely gone as the light around me blackened, and for a split moment I saw the world in negative as all its colours bled to a narrow palette of black and grey with a complex melding of all shapes and outlines into each other, the mountains and sea converging onto the windscreen in front of me, and somewhere above the earth the sun failed. A, just remarkable writing. Um, so you reach the, uh, the uh, 200-page mark and, and you're hit with that. And then you realise at the end of the book, and this bizarrely isn't a, um, a spoiler, I hate that term, and I hate the idea of spoilers, if a piece of work can be spoiled by a spoiler, it's trash. <laughs> if, it can be, if, if there's no reason to read it or watch it after someone has done the spoiler, inverted commas, it's trash. It's garbage. And I don't want to read... I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not interested. Um, so the spoiler for this is that the entire, he's dead the entire time. Right. Um, which is sort of the classic, uh, rather cheesy spoiler. Yes. But somehow it works. But also, I think it works because on the blurb, it tells you that it's told from the perspective of a dead man. Just as we begin to uh, draw to a close in the first great mind session, I'd like to draw an ending um, from one of my favourite books when I was younger, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Chebe. This passage, as it says on Great Mind, reveals the ending of Things Fall Apart, but as Nicholas has assured us, only a trashy novel would have a problem with having its ending revealed. Abirika who had been gazing steadily at his friend's dangling body, turned suddenly to the district commissioner and said ferociously, That man was one of the greatest men in Yumafoya. You drove him to kill himself, and now he will be buried like a dog. He could not say any more. His voice trembled and choked his words. Shut up, shouted one of the messengers, quite unnecessarily. Take down the body, the commissioner ordered his chief messenger, and bring it and all these people to court. Yes, sir, the messenger said, saluting. The commissioner went away, taking three or four of the soldiers with him. In the many years in which he had toiled to bring civilization to different parts of Africa, he had learnt a number of things. One of them was that a district commissioner must never attend to such undignified details as cutting down a dead man from the tree. Such attention would give the natives a poor opinion of him. In the book which he planned to write, he would stress that point. As he walked back to the court, he thought about that book. Every day brought him some new material. The story of this man who had killed a messenger and hanged himself would make interesting reading. One could almost write a whole chapter on him. Perhaps not a whole chapter, but a reasonable paragraph at any rate. There was so much else to include, and one must be firm in cutting out details. He had already chosen the title of the book after much thought. The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. Now, that it's, it's almost brilliant, it's a great, because the whole point is you've reduced the novel to the very paragraph that the man, the colonialist here is talking about. It's perhaps something to contest what you said, because the whole power of that ending comes from the fact that you have just read 150 pages on the man hanging from the tree, and you've read it from inside his mind. Absolutely. Is it one you've read? It's not one I've read, but it's one that I will read on the strength it, of the grape. On, oh, brilliant. Yeah. I certainly will. Well, that is the whole point here of Grapevine. We, we introduced to grapes and we hope over time you'll be encouraged to buy the books. The whole idea is to light a beacon for them, introduce you to new ideas. And Nicholas and I will be doing that for you weekly, fortnightly, 
However, many times the man is willing to walk to this side of London. Where would you like to take it from here as we head towards midnight? Three minutes to midnight, local time. It's uh, a good time to end midnight, I feel. As I said, the, uh, the moon was just barely full as I arrived. I expect it's still in the is same it state. Is it fuller now? <laughs> Feels like it's fuller. <laughs> Have you seen um, Kafka's house in Prague, by the way? I haven't. Just look at the images of it on Google, and as soon as you see that, you go, oh yeah, that explains a lot. He's, in the, he's literally in the shadow of a castle. <laughs> and you go, oh, of course he was the way that he was. Well, there you go. You, we have explained tonight, or at least Nicholas has, the very two factors which determine why we got the man we did. We've had a, a discourse on Joyce, and we'll have much more to come in future sessions. This has been the Grapevine Sessions, take one. We look forward to take two. Thanks a lot.